0: You are listening to motivational quotes and inspirational life stories from real-life people just like you. I'm your host Victoria Johnson. You can learn more about me and my number one best-selling book at victoriajohnson.org. It's time to share our experiences and motivate and inspire you. So let's get started. Hello beautiful listeners, and welcome back for another episode. Our guest today is Kelly Wolf and I'm excited to speak with her. She is so incredibly open and she's just said in our pre-interview, she said, take me wherever you want to go, which is beautiful because often there is a list of questions that I kind of work around, but Kelly is just open to wherever this podcast goes today. We are going to be talking about her book, Mount Hope, and so many interesting things that have happened in her life. So many adversities to overcome, things to do with the London bombing back in 2005, being on the... Ellen DeGeneres show in, of some sort there. I can't wait to learn more about that. And the her book that she worked on for seven years when she was a teacher and and retired from that, and as well about the passing of her son. So we are going to be covering a lot of ground today. Kelly Wolf is a fierce supporter of the LGBTQ plus community, and I'm sure she will share about that as well. Welcome to the show, Kelly.
1: Thank you, Victoria. You know what? The reason I'm going to let you take me wherever you want to go is because I I trust you and what you're doing and podcast, I think is really important and has a really important purpose. So I'm all yours.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Well, why don't we maybe start at the beginning of uh, overcoming some adversity Let's go back to either when you became involved with the LBGTQ plus community or back to that London bombing in 2005.
1: <laughs> I'll begin with the LGBTQ plus and I'll throw in the bombing. But in truth, I have had every family on my family tree branches be a member of that community. Community. I have a transgender daughter directly in my family. I am a member of that community. And so this group of people have my heart. And so I have always been an advocate, not only as a teacher, but also in the other jobs that I had. And so it is just a natural part of me to express my devotion to them. And it came from when I was very young. I grew up with my gay aunt and her lovely partner. And so it's just natural. The bombings happened in 2005. And this was in July of 2005. I was working for a fashion catalog at that time, doing some proofreading and some coordinating information for their, basically their clothing line. And I was in London with my transgender daughter. At that time, she was 16. And we were on, uh, I was presenting that day to the staff in London. And I had a ticket hold it held in my hand and we were trying to get to the right to station. And eight o'clock traffic is really, really... It was about 8.50. It it was really full and I couldn't get there on time and the train left without us. And I was a little frustrated and annoyed, to be honest with you. I was having a suitcase of samples and and my daughter. And uh, next thing we knew, they made an announcement that everybody needed to get up above ground that all tube stops are going to be canceled from this point forward. We had no idea why, nor did we hear the bomb go off. But the tube that I was supposed to ride with my own child is one of the ones that blew up. And so the rest of the day was spent just trying to get back to the main office, which was outside of town in a place called Goring. And we got abandoned at a station because all trains stopped in London on that day. And we had to have somebody come get us. And it wasn't until... We were reunited with my colleagues and back at our hotel that we realized, oh, three bombs actually went off and one of them was the one we were on. And so we really felt lucky and nervous and sort of a sense of unbelief about the whole thing. And so that is a chapter of our lives that was extraordinarily scary. And uh, I can't believe, you know, when I look back on it, it's sort of amazing to consider.
0: When you look back on it, is it one of those defining moments like was it did you feel it as that that this is where your life changed, that you realized about purpose and stepping into purpose and living out your dreams, and that we all have a clock ticking, and we don't know exactly when our time could come today, tomorrow, next year, twenty years?
1: yeah, that's a really. Good question. And I think that when you come out of a situation like that, where you saw your life so closely changed forever, you have a choice to make. You can either be someone who survived it and then try and live safe the rest of your life and have a sense of anxiety about it, or you become someone who becomes alive more alive because of it. You really face adventure and risk in an entirely new way after an experience like this. So you either become someone who is timid and frightened and scared and quiet about it because you survived it or you become someone who becomes alive because of it. And that's exactly where my daughter and I both headed. We both felt like after we had processed it all and realized how serious it was, this was a three country trip for her and I. And so we were going to go to London and then we were going to go to Paris next. And because it, this is not unlike 9 11, because of the extreme nature of this terrorist attack, even the airports and the train stations and the tunnel that goes underneath London to Paris, everybody's in, there's military presence everywhere. We were really nervous. And we had a decision to make are we going to go forward with our trip or are we going to run home? Because we had both instincts. And we just kind of faced fear head on and said, let's just do it. Let's just go to Paris. And we already pre-bought everything. Let's just go do it. And then we went to Scotland after that. And so you have a choice afterwards when you're faced with life and death. And you know this will come full circle when I face it again with another child. But you either land on the survival side or you live land on the alive thrive side, and that's that's definitely an intentional choice.
0: You. Talk about choice. And to me, that just really resonates because that one thing that we all have, the one thing that we can control is the thoughts we think and the choices we make. And I'm so glad that you and your daughter were able to decide to help use it to help you to live even bigger and brighter. Yeah. So shortly after that, you started working on your book and I understand you're doing your your book tour now. Your book is called Mount Hope. It's a fictional (laughs) work and it somehow ties into the Ellen DeGeneres show or one of her (laughs) programs. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your book and how uh, that
1: all came to be. Sure. Okay, where do we start? Let's see. I will first say that my husband and I have five adult children. Uh, Three of them were natural born and two of them were adult, or excuse me, teenagers that we adopted. And because both of us were in education, and it was easy for us to sort of fall in love with vulnerable students. And so one of them was a young young man who was 14 years old. He was in the foster care system. And we lived in Middle Earth, Kansas at the time where everybody has the same putty colored skin, but he was an African-American teenager, the only one in the school. And because of that, we noticed him and began to really care for him. And so we invited him into our lives. He moved in with us at 14, but he was adopted at 15. And he's been in the foster care system his entire life. He was went in at age three. And so everything that could possibly happen to someone abuse-wise happened to Chris. So he came with a lot of baggage and a lot of trauma into our family, but we loved him through it and tried to get him some therapeutic help and things. And so his high school went pretty well. He graduated from high school, strong athlete and academically and got a football scholarship at a college, but he came from a family of addiction. Both his parents were very serious addicts. And we told him if, If you ever open up that door and begin to drink or use drugs, you're pretty vulnerable to it and and it might be hard to stop. And so be careful, son. And when he went to college, he had a lot of free time and that was not something that he could manage very well so he joined the army and thought that would provide some structure to him and he did really well in basic and in training but afterwards you know his job begins and he has money and time and that's when he began to sort of run away from that past trauma and begin to use and the army decided they didn't need him anymore if he was going to be using alcohol and drugs so we brought him home and this began his adult life of in and out of rehab in and out of jail in and out of Hospitals, and so his was a hard, hard run. And as a parent who loved him, we just want to say yes to everything. That's what. I mean, as a parent, you just want to encourage and say yes to all everything they want to do. But if you have an addict, you have to say no, and you have to have boundaries. You're encouraging and supportive, and you want to you want to help them succeed in their sobriety. But no becomes a boundary that this un, unfortunate side effect. And so in 2020, we're in Colorado. 2020, not that long ago, right, is when COVID was crazy. Every All the cities shut down, the schools closed. And in the summer, Black Lives Matter is happening in the streets. So just to kind of take you back to what was happening then, my husband is a superintendent of schools. And he, in the summertime, is trying to decide, are we even having schools? Are we doing hybrids? Are there masks or no backs? And, like, the whole chaos of school was beginning. And the sheriff walked into the his office and told him that Chris had taken his life. and that it took three days to figure out who he was because he didn't have an ID on him and that we had to go get him. And so that's when our life changed forever, right? The rug was just pulled out from underneath us. And so we went back to Wichita and got his ashes and brought him back, but we didn't have a funeral right away. His other siblings live all over the United States and we wanted to bring them in at Christmas. And so Steve, my husband, had to go back to work right away. I hardly got a chance to... Like the next day he was at work because they had... COVID uh, accommodations to make. And I laid down on the couch and tried not to feel anything. And it looked like morning, but it was actually me being really still trying to sleep through this pain. I stopped writing my book at that point. I lost all creative energy. I wasn't even showering. And so then I get a call six weeks after Chris's passing from the Ellen DeGeneres production team. They had gotten my audition tape for their game show two years ago and are just now getting around to it and said, Hey, hey, we would really like to interview you, our production staff and casting department. Are you still interested? And I don't know why I said yes, but I instinctually did and just figured, well, it'll get me off the couch. I mean, I guess I can, I'll just do it because I'm not, I'm not thriving here. So long story short, I ended up in Los Angeles in August. So Chris died uh, in the middle of July and now it's August and it's all expense paid. So why not? So this is the very first production of a game show or any kind of filming at the Warner Brothers set in Los Angeles. And so it is COVID Serious. Like, I look like I was dropped down into a contagion movie. Everybody's got visors and hats and full surgical gowns and gloves, and their shoes are covered and their hat heads are covered. And the students, the, excuse me, the contestants are all isolated in their hotel for six days in quarantine. And then we had four COVID tests before we could even go on set. And what I did in those six days by myself in that hotel room was panic because I didn't want to fake being a clown or a cheerleader when. And I feel like crap and I haven't done the emotional work that I need to do. And so pride made me sit there and go, I better start mourning and feeling things or I'm going to blow. Everyone's going to see through me when I get on TV, right? So I invited in all of Chris's memories. And you don't want to do that when you're in pain because it's going to hurt and you're going to miss them. But I did. And I cried and I journaled and I prayed and I slept and I practiced talking and I just got through it. And so by the time the six days were over, it's not that I was healed, but that I could imagine Chris beside me sort of linking arms with me and doing it together. So By the time I got to set, and I started playing games. I could be authentically joyful and playful because he was right there beside me cheering me on. And so I did end up doing really well on the show. The, the way the show works is you play one game, and if you win that, then the winner goes to the next round. And if you win that, then the winner is the final one on stage with Ellen. And I don't know how the cards all fell in place, but I ended up being the only one left on stage with Ellen. And she was super sweet and super kind. And I didn't tell anybody that I had just lost my son six weeks prior. They didn't know that until. After the fact, but I'm on stage with her and I just can hardly believe it. And she's super sweet, just on it as a side note. It's a very submissive, kind, timid, shy person who she was checking on me constantly, said she liked my outfit, all this stuff. So I ended up winning some money. I ended up winning $75,000 and As the show is ending, she has kind of this sidekick guy, Twitch, who plays DJ music and there's lights and music and everything going on. And we're all kind of dancing on stage as the credits roll, but I don't see any of that. I just imagine Chris beside me. And so before I know it, I am home and all of a sudden have hope again. It's not that I came home healed. It's just that I came home with the hope that I'm going to be okay. And that even though like my Heart is cracked in half, and I have this wound. I feel like like the space around my heart sort of got bigger and could hold accommodate the weight of it again, you know. And so I bought a tombstone for Chris, a nice one, uh, with the money because I could. And I bought myself a little used car, and the rest I ended up giving away. But it was about six months after the show that I could start to write again. It kind of took a while for my creative energy to go by. And I'll say that I'm a big proponent of therapy. And so I intentionally chose to go to therapy after I got back. Ellen can't be my therapist. So I had to go hire my own therapist. And that was really good. And the reason why that was an important choice for me is because you can easily excuse your choices and blame it on mourning or the opposite. You know, you can end up not recognizing that the trauma that you've been through is affecting your choices and I wanted to be discerning about both of those things and so after I got through some therapy and I started getting my creative juices back and so that's what led me back to my book so before I go to my book do you have any questions about the game show or anything about what I just did where well, I just, <laughs> where just, I just to... took you
0: <laughs> I want to say that you did take us on a beautiful journey I am doing my best not to cry I really oh. feel your feelings as you share and admire your self-awareness. And as always, I'm just incredibly in awe of the divine timing and how things happen just at the right time for us. So yes, please tell us more about your book, Mount Hope. Just so the listeners know, you can learn more about Kelly and her book at kellywolf.com. I'm going to spell that for you, K-E-L-L-I-E-W-O oolf.com. So two L's in Kelly, two O's in wolf.com. So take us there, Mount Hope.
1: Okay. Well, so this is my love letter to the LGBTQ plus community. And because this community has been marginalized and discriminated against largely by the faith community, and I'm going to pick on my own uh, Christianity. I am a devoted disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, but I acknowledge that the Christian church as a whole has made some mistakes and has hurt some people. And so this community is the one that I am advocating for and hoping to heal. So this book is fiction. And I know there are lots of nonfiction authors out there who are already exploring the biblical definitions and the biblical interpretations of homosexuality sins. And that that's all of those arguments. We've seen them, right? The battlefield on both sides, throwing Bible verses back and forth at each other. And it doesn't create dignity or respect or love for the community that's hurting. And so I didn't want to entertain the debate. I wanted to provide an experience so this book is a story that has two plot lines. It's set in Topeka, Kansas and which is where I grew up, but it's also the home church of Westboro Baptist Church. They're the protesting hate group that carries signs at funerals that are really harsh. And so a young gay man is murdered brutally in a hate crime. And the investigation is the thriller murder mystery side of the plot. The other plot line is that the young gay man who was murdered after his passing is having a conversation with Jesus about being gay. And so this is speaking right into the hearts and minds uh, and souls of this community, and kind of correcting the narrative that's been played out on the battlefields. Right? He's just getting to the just getting to the point, and I'll I'll give you the point. <laughs> you don't have to read the book to hear the point. Here's the point: I don't care about your identity or your sexuality. I just want a relationship with you, and and to put it in a metaphor would be, I I don't care how you decorate your locker. I just care how you're going to walk with me in the hallways. And that message is wrapped up in a lot of really emotional, tearful scenes and a lot of healing sort of narratives inside of the story. And I, I think it's really, I'm really, really proud of it. And I had to sit very close to the throne to do this. You can imagine that there are some people who would find it to be heresy that I would put words in the Lord's mouth besides what's in the Bible. And So there, I am getting some pushback on that. But the real audience here is not the Pharisee; it's my LGBTQ plus family. It's my they have my heart, and I truly believe that this message is what God and I co-create, co-created create co together, that I had to stay very close to the throne so my own biases and my own emotions wouldn't get involved. And I'm not saying I'm a prophet or I channeled God or anything crazy like that. I'm just saying, this is the Jesus I know. This is the language he uses when he speaks to me. And so I wanted to give this experience to my family. And so that's the basis of the book. And so to take a full circle to Chris, at the end of the book, not only is the crime solved, <laughs> but... Now, Jesus and the victim, their conversation about this topic is over, and they're gonna actually enter heaven. And so this heaven scene opens up and it's a full of people, a crowd of people with multiple ages and sizes and colors of all kinds from around the world, and there are animals and pets playing all over the place, and all of them are there to greet this victim and Jesus. And the victim's dog, who has actually been part of this narrative also, runs into the crowd and jumps into the the arms of a beautiful young black man about the same age as the victim. And the victim turns to Jesus and says, who is that? My dog obviously knows who he is. And he goes, oh, that's Chris. Uh, he's been watching your dog until you got here. And that little tiny, I know I'm about to cry too, <laughs> um, that little tiny nod to him was so healing to me just to put, because I had put the book down and couldn't finish it because I had lost him. And then to put it, pick it back up again and place him in that heaven scene, whole and healed and ready to live in His perfection, right? It was really important to me.
0: Oh, so powerful. So powerful. I'm sitting here just trying to keep it together. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so uh me too. To, <laughs> I'm so excited to be sharing your book with the listeners. Mount Hope again that at kellywolf.com, to ls2 two O's. I generally ask for a favorite quote, but I just found a favorite quote from you already. Uh, oh. tell me if I got it right. Okay, I don't care how you decorate your locker. I just care how you walk through the hallways with me. Perfect. yes, yes.
1: I got chills when you said it like that. Thank you. Uh, Oh, just incredibly beautiful. And thank you. Thank you. I, well, the same people who would keep LGBTQ plus out of that heaven is the same people who would keep a suicide person out of heaven. That's an old belief system that is, I don't know where that came from, but it's cruel. And I so, admire my, your
0: strength with taking this on and the bravery of you. just uh, speaking your truth and how you see things in the face of adversity and in the face of pushback, especially when you know the pushback is coming. Yeah, I, I can understand how that feels. Kelly, is there any final words you want to share with the listeners?
1: No except that I'll take it back to the idea of you know you can either survive your circumstances or, or you can make it make you come alive and thrive. And that's a choice. And I realize now looking back that I made that choice over and over again. And I don't know where that sort of grit came from. I'm going to give credit to the Holy Spirit and to my spiritual life. And that my book ended up being this defiant form of hope. And I think living fully and thriving is also a defiant choice. And so I I kind of see the full circle just talking to you about it. I think I'm having an aha moment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, so next is Oprah with the aha.
1: (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I would go on, Oprah. I would.
0: (laughs) Well, I have learned uh, so much from you. I resonate with what you have said, and I'm sure that our listeners will too. You've taken us on such a journey, and I thank you for that. I am excited to read your book, Mount Hope. I can't thank you enough for being a strong, powerful woman who is living in her purpose. Thank so you thank you Victoria. for being on. Thank you for being on the show.
1: and uh, I look forward to having you on again. I would love to come back and like recognizes like, and so I acknowledge your and energy too, and keep doing what you're doing. I think it's so valuable. Oh, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us today. It is my true desire that you have been inspired and felt a sense of connection with the words being shared. If you have an inspirational story to share on how you have overcome adversity and created an exceptional life, please visit my website, victoriajohnson.org. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next time.